This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Are you giving your pets gifts for the holidays? You're not alone. Motley Fool Money starts now. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. I'm Deidre Woolard here with Motley Fool analyst Bill Barker. Bill, how's it going today? It's going well, thanks. <laughs> Glad to hear it. Well, yesterday uh, on the show, uh, Dylan and Bill Mann, I believe, talked about people food. We're going to start with talking about pet food with Chewy earnings. So, Bill, I got to ask you, I, I know you have pets. I believe you have a dog. Are you a Chewy subscriber? I think... I've seen uh, some people rave about their Chewy's experience, but I get food delivered uh, regularly by Amazon and haven't ever given it a thought as to why it would uh, change. So, do you have a subscription with Amazon, or do you just buy food when when the bowl is empty? I, there's a subscription for some of the food, and and other parts of the food uh, are are when the bowl is empty. Uh, so, uh, the, some there's one of the dogs is is on prescription food right now, so I can't just uh, get that as easily as otherwise. But it's a problem for Chewy is that there aren't enough uh, people like me thinking about uh, getting multiple dogs out there. They need they need uh, more customers. It seems like. I think so. Well, it's interesting because you you get the subscription, but you get it through Amazon. And AutoShip is huge for for Chewy too. It's about seventy six percent of their business, according to according to their earnings. And I find that interesting because I have a cat who's also on prescription food and also gets prescription medicine because he's itchy. And so and so we have Chewy for the uh, for the medicine, but not for the food, which is you know the medicine is a big part of Chewy's business as as well. Seems like a bigger part, but you're right. The earnings the Earnings were they weren't great. I mean, the customer count was down by by one percent. That's that's not great, you know. I mean, we're, this is this is sort of a pandemic, darling. But what impressed me was how much money everybody continues to spend. Net sales of five hundred and forty three dollars per customer, up year over year by around fourteen percent. So they're they're trying to to grow customers, but they also are trying to to keep people spending. Some of that is the pharmacy part. But are they putting too much faith in how much we love our pets? I don't know if you've seen those commercials that Chewy's been running, but they make it seem like we are just ready to spend everything on our animals. I guess if they're betting on an increased trend in uh, what is termed in some places pet humanization, then you know that's one way to go. They uh, they are going to run into a limit on that. Uh, before running into a limit, I think, on the possibility of acquiring more customers, pointed out that uh, there was sort of a COVID darling. I think a lot of the growth was pulled forward. Uh, there was uh, an interpretation of the mass adoption of pets as something that 
was the beginning of uh, you know extended period of uh, growth in the pet markets uh, rather than just a pulling forward of, of future growth. And so you know the stock price reflected that in 2021. And and not ever since, you know, this is a stock that's been yeah. clobbered as reality has been delivered rather than the fantasy that uh, was uh, hoped for by not just owners of this stock but a lot of others that uh, saw changes in behavior over a short period rather than fundamental changes in behavior over a longer period. Yeah, that that is one of the things that that I'm asking myself about about this stock as well. This one and the one we'll talk about later. Not a good year for either. But one of the things I mentioned on the call was really strong Black Friday and Cyber Monday. It's gone down now since then. But this thing about people buying pets gifts. Do you, do you buy your dogs gifts? No, um, I mean there, there have been some <laughs> impulse purchases at times, but I've been asked by the kids, uh, you know, it's so and so's birthday. What are, what are you getting her? And <laughs> I just take the the cat, the dog. They don't know anything about that. They just want a little more food. That's that's what they really want. Uh, but uh, certainly the uh, opportunity to buy. Uh, costumes at Halloween for your pet uh, Very is a thing. Um, it doesn't seem to be a thing that the pets want, but uh, it's it, a lot of these gifts are things that uh, people want more than the pets want. Well, Chewy's kind of betting on this idea of of pet parents, you know, or, or paw parents, depending on on who you talk to, with this idea that you really you treat your your pet your pet is family, and you have to treat them like family. Which uh, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I love my cat, but I'm not. I'm not sure I consider myself my my cat's parent. Uh, you know, with looking at Chewy, you know, tough year in the market, as we've mentioned. Part of that the losses. This is what the market really didn't like, and they're they're still a really young company. They're still growing. They're expanding into Canada. They're you know they're they're working on streamlining their you know all of their shipping and things like that. I'm wondering, do you think the market has less tolerance for a company that that isn't a tech company? Because losses losses seem to hurt more if you're, you know, not making software. From from what I can tell. Well, if you're not growing that fast and you're losing money, that's a bad combination. Always has been. Yeah. You can defer the making money while the growth is exceptional, but when the growth becomes something that you can measure against lots and lots of other things uh, and ones that are making money, uh, you, you suffer by comparison. So, when you depart the category of 20-30%, whatever it might be, uh, annual growth, and you wander into high single-digit, very, very low double-digit, um, which is, I think, about as high as you might rationally predict for, for Chewy at this point, um, then, then you know, the question turns to, how does that stack up uh, in terms of profits? Uh, and poorly is the answer today. Uh, and, Sadly, yes. And so, so then you're sort of well. Who are the the most likely buyers and owners of of the stock? And it's you know people who buy the story and either have just faith, unshakable faith in in management, or think there's a hiccup going on or something like that. But you're 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 getting into fewer and fewer buyers just uh, when you don't have 
either strong growth or uh, any profitability. Now, there's there's future profitability, uh, I suppose, in this company if it focuses on that. Uh, but it's uh, still saying that uh, you know it's a good growth story. Yeah, that's that. I think is the interesting thing is that it was maybe being seen as more of uh, less of what it is, which is you know e-commerce, e and seeing it more as some new new type of company. And you know, I, the question I'm asking myself about it is, were the expectations too big? Because I think we've seen that with a lot of the pandemic darlings is that they had growth, and we just thought, oh, the sky's the limit, and then. Then we sort of came back to reality. It's like maybe this is a smaller business than than we thought. You know, you mentioned earlier the idea of like people need more people need to be getting more pets. I mean, that's one of the issues that that is is happening. Adoption rates are down. You know, we're not we're not getting as many pets as we did when we were all home during the pandemic. And one of the things that I think about with this company is is macro pressures, right? So you've got the pressure of people probably will continue to spend on their pets, maybe spend a little less. You know, that that's a concern. The other one that I think about, which is kind of off to the side, but the idea of household formation. So my theory is if rents are more expensive, maybe people are living at home longer, maybe they're not, you know, going out and and on their own and then maybe won't get pets. So with all of this stuff, is Chewy just a smaller business maybe than the market really wanted it to be? Oh, certainly than what the market wanted it to be back uh, you know, when it the stock was five X, six X uh what it is today, uh, the the growth was understood to be, uh, you know, a, a function of that real step up during the pandemic, and then just stretched out as people would maintain their pets and you know get more insurance for them, and the pets would age, and they'd have more uh, prescription medicine and and everything, and and they would. You know, there were many new pet owners, and they would become lifelong pet owners. Well, you know, some of that has played out. The pet market is bigger today than it was in 2019, but it's still digesting a lot of people that aren't going to turn out to be longer term or lifelong pet owners, or because they uh, don't have the choice to work from home. Uh, can't maintain their their pet uh, the way they had or the way the pet wants to be you know cared for so I think there's there's continued digestion of the growth that occurred and for a company that uh, is, was in the high growth category that's you know a difficult uh, a difficult thing to navigate. Yeah, true. But the thing I do love about this is is those auto ship numbers. I mean, I think that's that's a great thing to keep watching for this company. And as long as they as long as they keep having that and they keep growing spend, hopefully they sort out some of the other stuff and and learn to cut costs a little bit. Uh, you know, the people people will continue to receive the food, and then the, the food will continue to get eaten. And it is convenient <laughs> to have the auto ship. It's like a subscription. It is a subscription. You know. Uh, yeah. So th that is a. a more stable uh, source of revenue than uh, than otherwise, but uh, you know, as the numbers this quarter showed, that's not enough to produce the top line growth that uh, the stock needed. Yeah, I want to pivot and talk about another company that reported earnings, which is Dollar General. It has not been a great year for them either, uh, not in the market or certainly in the court of public opinion. There was a Bloomberg cover story in September about uh, Dollar General employees saying it's a terrible place to work. 
But I started getting interested in this one kind of after that. I read that story, not, you know, it, not not great, not not a great look for them. But then, you know, they brought back their their CEO, uh, their former CEO Todd Bassos, in in October. I'm I'm starting to look at this one as a turnaround. One of the things that they announced, uh, not on this call, but before that, was that they're investing 150 million dollars in labor hours. So they're focused more on the stores, on addressing the, some of those customer service problems, some of the the issues with shrink that they've had. Uh, so in general, you've got a CEO coming back. How long do you give them? Is it like a new CEO where you say, okay, it's got to be a full year? But if you've got a CEO coming back, they already know the company. Do you want to see action and results a little sooner? Yeah, well, I think one of the things that you're going to see, and you saw it perhaps uh, already, is is the sort of big bath quarter where you put a lot of the bad stuff uh, into your first quarter, maybe two quarters of results for the CEO, uh, some charges, uh, you know, sort of assess what you can put into the past and put it into one big bundle and and then start talking about the future. And I think mm-hmm. that uh, certainly with a returning CEO, uh, he's going to be much more tuned to exactly where the bodies are buried for this company and a very detailed knowledge of uh, what does and doesn't work, not only in the industry generally, uh, but uh, with the company specifically. And it's not a function of a company that needs, I think, a new pair of eyes uh, to look at it. Uh, an old pair of eyes uh, is had, had great success, uh, sort of left at the right time, perhaps, but uh, you only have to go back a year to have the stock uh, double the price that it was that it is today. And prior to this last 12 months, it was a fairly smooth 15 years uh, for the company. So I think that uh, the odds uh, in the market or what the market's betting on is a return uh, to the past. And that that's a pretty good story for shareholders. Whether it develops is, as, as you say, that's, that's a a question how much time you should give uh, and I would say uh, just a couple of quarters you'll you'll see something yeah I think that's I think what you just mentioned is why I'm I'm interested in this one because it it was a good performer it's a you know it's a good good dividend it's a good it's a, it's been a good stock and then it's had this this bad year and now it seems maybe this is like their their Domino's pizza moment where they admit that hey there's a problem but I think one of the things that's interesting for them, so not a great quarter, same store sales uh, down a little bit, but they're really they're putting a lot of their energy into into growth. So maybe this is part of that, like get all the cost stuff out of the way, because their real estate plans are ambitious. Eight hundred new stores, about fifteen hundred remodels. You know, you think sometimes as a CEO comes in, they want to you know trim costs, trims the sales. Uh, this is this is the the opposite approach, and I'm wondering if that is because, I mean, Dollar General, the dollar stores, uh, they kind of have this captive audience. So I think maybe they figure they increase, you know, get more people in the stores, increase quality. Maybe they increase sales. Is that something we should be looking at as part of the thesis here? 
Well, the the growth here has to be put into context. Eight hundred stores. I think they've got fifteen, seventeen thousand right now. There. Yeah, they've got a lot of stores. You talk about the dollar stores um, in general for the category. They're uh, thirty-seven thousand. So, uh, to put that into a bit of a pointless context, uh, you could visit one every day for a hundred years uh, and not have yet visited them all. If that were a worthwhile thing to do with your next hundred years, I've given you that idea. Uh, so there are plenty of them out there. Eight hundred more isn't really as big a number as as you might think, given the installed store base already uh, and the availability of them. But you know, there there are probably uh, eight hundred reasonable locations, um, and when you map that out over a few years. I think the remodeling is is also a big part of this, and I wouldn't doubt that there are well more than 1,500 stores that look like they could use a little remodeling out of the, the yeah. entire count. So, I think they've got plenty to do. They've got to get by these... Uh, these OSHA reports and the the employee safety uh, problems and fines that they uh, have accumulated over the years and have been back in the news this year, I you know you you sort of know what you're getting when you go into a, a, a Dollar General, uh, but they can they can up the experience uh, if they choose to use their money that way, and they've I think discontinued their uh, share buybacks. Uh, so they're, they've got some more money available to dedicate to that up to a point, uh, which is up to the point at which the debt becomes a problem because this is a company that has plenty of debt. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, when you're sort of assessing this as as a potential, you know, turnaround, there's there's just a lot of factors. And I'm thinking about the dollar stores in general a lot lately because I'm thinking about consumer behavior, shifting consumer behavior. What what could be next? Uh, you know, we've, we've talked so much about consumer spending. I find it interesting looking at Dollar Tree versus uh, Dollar General because they're sort of I mean, they're both dollar stores, but you've got kind of different. You've got a different product mix, and Dollar General is so much more tied to the grocery side of things, and they're really they're really on more in rural areas. So Dollar Tree is starting to think like, okay. We're moving beyond the dollar, more expensive, uh, more expensive items. Dollar General, they're doing something different. They're putting in these uh, DG markets, Dollar General markets. More, more fresh food looks sort of like a grocery store, but like a very small grocery store. So when you're thinking about Dollar General, what do you think about as as its role, kind of in the consumer spending cycle? I think more and more embedded with the the consumables and the refrigerated installations uh, the food that has to be refrigerated that they're selling uh, they're they're moving more toward consumer spending that does not change over time and is not particularly uh, vulnerable to macroeconomic factors uh, people are going to come in uh, frequently uh, for their consumables they're they're putting in more produce which uh, will bring people in more often because that's something you you buy more frequently. So I, I think it's a good plan to get people in in more more frequently, uh, give them uh, what they need most, uh, and layer on some some impulse purchases beyond that. 
it's very competitive. They they don't have a moat. It's extremely easy wherever there's competition. And although they in some rural communities are, you know, the the go-to place, and in, in many others of of any greater size, uh, population size or growing population, there's going to be competition, not just from Family Dollar, Dollar Tree, or Walmart uh, in, in slightly larger well, or significantly larger locations, but uh, there's only so much you can capture uh, before uh, the online sales are also a threat. Their, their normal purchases, I think, less than or around fifteen dollars uh, per basket. So that's not something that people are most frequently getting done online. So how much they can grow that that basket size uh, without finding that they're running into competition from from other and bigger players? I don't know. I think that's a bit of a cap. But everything up until about twelve months ago was generally. Uh, successful uh, for this company. They had, uh, as I say, a, a good, more than decade-long, fairly smooth, you know, story uh, that that people would love to see repeated. Well, I feel like both of the companies we talked about today are ones that we're, we're going to want to see next quarter, and because things things have to go in a direction at least. Thanks for your time today, Bill. Okay, thank you. If you're a regular Motley Fool Money listener, you're probably well aware of how dividend stocks have the potential to really supercharge your portfolio's return. Dividends have accounted for around 40% of the total return of the S&P 500 since 1930, and of course have been an important tool for all-time greats like Benjamin Graham and Warren Buffett. Our top-notch analysts at Motley Fool Stock Advisors certainly agree, and have put together a list of five quality dividend payers that are also recommendations in our Stock Advisor service. The report is free to you, just as a thank you for listening to our podcast. No purchase necessary. Just go to fool.com slash dividends and we'll email it directly to your inbox. That's fool.com slash dividends to claim your five dividend stock recommendations now. Ricky Mulvey with Motley Fool Money here to tell you about a vehicle that is redefining sporting luxury, the Range Rover Sport. The first thing I noticed when I sat down in the driver's seat is that I felt like I was in a cockpit. You're up off the ground in a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. I also really appreciated the overhead 360-degree camera view that let me know exactly where I was going as I was backing out of the parking space. I went for a drive in the Range Rover Sport out in Littleton, Colorado, and tested the accelerator just a little bit and felt the performance and agility. It's an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and effortless composure. To put it plainly, the Range Rover Sport is powerful. It's also quiet and comfortable. Advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable yet. I'd like to invite you to visit LandRoverUSA.com to learn more about the Range Rover Sport. We hear a lot about how weight loss drugs have the potential to upend more unexpected industries, airlines, gyms, apparel. But how are the leaders of medical device companies thinking about these new drugs? Up next, Mary Long talks with Kevin Sayre, CEO of Dexcom, about the future of diabetes care and the small monitor that's changing what that care looks like. Maybe we can 
start by having you give us an overview of the history of diabetes care and how Dexcom came to really, really be a pioneer in continuous glucose monitoring. Uh, great question. Uh, I personally go back in diabetes care back to the mid-90s. Uh, I started my time in diabetes at Minimed Diabetes, which Medtronic bought and is their diabetes arm right now. With diabetes care, particularly those on insulin, there's always been several problems that need to be solved. You know, and insulin was the first big one. What a great discovery that was. Then how's that insulin delivered? And, and more importantly, what information do people use to manage their diabetes health and figure out how much insulin to deliver. Over time, the way people did that in the beginning was like urine sticks, uh, you know, and then uh, finger sticks where people would prick their finger and you would prick your finger and get a number and say, okay, based on that, this is how much insulin I'm going to take or what I'm going to do, which is kind of like watching a basketball game and looking at the score in the middle of the first quarter and deciding who's going to win. You know, it doesn't work that way. And, and, and I experienced the vision or the experience of continuous glucose monitoring way back in the 90s when I was, was there and then had the chance to come to Dexcom. But quite honestly, the most difficult problem to solve in, in intensive insulin therapy is what is the information I'm going to base that decision on? So what continuous glucose monitoring gives individuals is the opportunity to look at their glucose all the time. And our numbers go directly to your phone. We, you know, we want to meet people where they are. They get a new glucose value every five minutes. And then we have alerts and alarms and, and system features that, that literally enable them to be self, I mean, safe and more healthy than they would ever be without it. And we've gone from a, a position, particularly with insulin users, way back in the day. I've been at Dexcom now for 12 years full time. To It took a long time to get somebody to get CGM to where now we're covered by all major insurance companies. We're the most affordable, reimbursed uh, solution there is for glucose monitoring. And, and, and most kids, if they get diagnosed with type 1 diabetes now or insulin, they leave with a, with, with a Dexcom on. They're not going through everybody what everybody went through in the past. So this has evolved to really become the standard of care there, and we believe we have a lot more runway uh, in, in other areas going forward. So that evolution that you mentioned, I've heard you say before that part of what Dexcom is and has been doing is really building an entirely new industry. Can you explain a bit what you might mean by that? Yeah. Uh, and again, I'll go back to the beginning. In the beginning, insurance companies really didn't even want to pay for this because it mm -hmm. looked like we're adding more cost to the system. So we had to go create models to whereby we could get this reimbursed for people to use. We decided as a company uh, that we wanted to take this technology to the phone. We were the first medical device of this nature, of this classification, to go directly to a phone. When we went to a phone, all sorts of windows opened up. Uh, because we enable people to, for example, to share data with others. Uh, we rang the NASDAQ bell a couple of weeks ago, and I talked to one of our, we had a lot of what we call our Dexcom warriors there, people who represent our company, who use our product. And one was a young woman who told me a story. She's from Australia, and she was asleep in a hotel room at 4 o'clock in the morning when people broke down her door because her blood glucose gone low, had gone low. And her friend in Australia had seen it because she followed the data on the phone, called the hotel, and saved her life. So we've created you know, situations and, and, and things of that nature to help people in their care. 
We've also created an industry with respect to interoperability. We share our data with other companies. We enable insulin pumps to, and algorithm companies to deliver automa- have automated insulin delivery to give people better, better lives. And we share our data with apps, uh, with companies, nutrition-based, diabetes care-based, whatever. If our, if our data can make somebody healthier, we want people to use our data where they can. And, and most every first in our industry has been created by, by our company. Dexcom is not the only company that makes a CGM device. Your chief rivals are Abbott, which makes the Freestyle Libre, and Medtronic. Those are both large, like diversified medical device companies. Dexcom does Dexcom. End of story. How does that singular focus help you and hurt you? Well, I consider it an asset primarily, but I, 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 let me talk about how it helps us first. That singular focus means we have to be extremely clever and innovative. And that list of firsts I came uh, at you with earlier, going to the phone first, the first interoperable uh, system, and and our level of accuracy and performance, the reimbursement we've obtained, we have to lead this industry. We can't follow uh, the other guys. So we have. We've always prided ourselves on having the best product, and that has given us a tremendous advantage over time with respect to accuracy and performance. Where it's difficult, uh, and, and the things I think about when I think about our competitors, quite candidly, is infrastructure. As we look at new geographies to go into, for example, we don't have a cardiovascular business in Bulgaria or, you know, pick a country. We have to very selectively pick where we're going to make investments and how we're going to grow international in these other geographies because we don't have other businesses there. So we, we have grown very methodically, very thoughtfully, very creatively over time internationally and scaled our business that way. It's lack of infrastructure, um, but we've built it uh, nicely. You know, we've gone from, we more than doubled the number of employees that we have in the past three years for example, as we built infrastructure out, again, while growing profitably. The latest iteration generation of your CGM device is the G7, and that launched earlier this year. That rollout happened all around the world at the same time. Seems like that was a success. You raised end of your <laughs> you raised end of your guidance after posting your most recent results and are now targeting 3.575 to 3.6 billion dollars in revenue, which is about a 23 to 24% year-over-year growth. I'd imagine that there's a lot of planning that goes into that kind of launch and also maybe a lot of chaos. What did you learn from that experience and maybe what will you do differently when the G8 one day comes out? Well, what we learned, we, we've learned a lot of things and that's really a good question. Our G6 launch that happened five years earlier, we weren't ready for. We were literally running out of inventory almost on a monthly basis. If you ask my team, we were holding the business together. We're still growing well and we were doing fine, but it, it was really tough. We planned this launch much better from a supplier and a capacity perspective and have had no product shortages whatsoever. We also matured our development process enough to whereby we launched this product in a much more mature manner than other ones. You always have things you can improve when you launch a product, but I think the product was launched very maturely and in a very good state. The other thing we learned is about our technology in general. People love our old product because it saves their life and it's been such an integral part of their care that while the other product is smaller and more accurate and reimbursed and affordable, 
there's emotional difficulty sometimes in switching for people mm. because again we've been front and center in their lives so we're we're switching uh people are switching out that are on the g6 system and g7 most of our g7 users are new to dexcom they they're not g6 switchers we've mm. been able to access a lot more physicians uh, as far as prescriptions 18,000 more physicians in the u.s have written dexcom scripts than had written scripts a year ago because the new product has so many great features with respect to a smaller size it's ease of use the new app is is really strong and phenomenal uh, so i think the launch has been very successful and and with g8 i think what we've learned is it will just apply those learnings let's make sure the product is ready let's make sure it's baked let's make sure we identify the features that people need to put into it i think we did a very good job of identifying uh, what our users were going to want let's figure out what that next level of features is and and build on that platform so when you think about future the future of dexcom and future iterations of g7 g8 what have you you seem to have a really close relationship with your with patients with the consumers that use your products how do you source feedback from them and then incorporate that into future iterations of this device? We continuously uh, pulse our customers and, and ask for their feedback. We we monitor social media uh, very closely. The diabetes community is not quiet. Uh, they're pretty vocal. And, and in fact, I, I got some great feedback when we were in New York ringing the bell. Uh, we had a dinner. We brought a lot of, again, our Dexcom warriors back. We had a luncheon for them. I sat at a table to get feedback from an 11-year-old, a 9-year-old, and a 7-year-old. And I said, okay, tell me what you would have us do better. Uh, and it's it's really fun to ask uh, the question. And they all had really good answers. They want us to make the product last longer. And we've committed to going from a day product to a 15-day product over time. Uh, they talked about a couple things in the app they'd like to see. These kids, I mean, imagine being seven years old and having to manage taking shots every day or an insulin pump that's giving you insulin. When you ask a seven-year-old that question, you'd be shocked at the maturity of their answer. I'd like a different adhesive that does X, Y, and Z. Okay, we can we can do that. So we ask directly, Pulse uh, directly. We spend time with social media. We also, again, you, you talked about us being a regulated company. We also have to recognize that whatever we do is regulated, and we have to make sure people are safe and, and it is a win. So we balance all of that. Weight loss drugs have been a hot topic this year, um, and there are plenty of bears that are saying that this is going to change you know, every industry, not just things that are seemingly related to weight loss drugs, but even airlines are going to change their entire, their entire setup. Perhaps unsurprisingly, part of that conversation has involved diabetes companies and and companies just like yours. And yet, again, you posted this amazing quarter most recently, and I think even cited a study that says, well, actually, use of these GLP-1, these weight loss drugs, supplements and increases use of CGM products. Can you talk a bit about how you see the future of weight loss drugs interacting with your product? Yeah, and and look, this drug category is amazing. The results that have been produced have been absolutely amazing. But there's never been a time when people wouldn't need uh, CGM as a result of everything that's been learned. What the thing that we talked about was data that we've we've garnered through, uh, you know, through very strong data sources that people who go on these weight loss drugs, may, you know, like people who have type 2 diabetes who are on basal insulin, if you add a GLP-1 to their therapy, if you add CGM, their outcomes are better. 
and the outcomes of these people all get better if you add CGM to those therapies across the board, if they're on intensive insulin therapy, basal insulin therapy, or just somebody with type 2 diabetes and you add a GLP-1 to what they're already doing, because it gives you a real-time scorecard. You know, you, you learn throughout the course of a day, for example, if you're on one of these weight loss drugs, look, I can keep my glucose at a pretty steady state because I'm not eating as much. You also learn very quickly, and, and a lot of us as executives of our company, we wear sensors all the time without diabetes. You learn what specific meals do to your glucose and to your health. And, and so it definitely can, can create a better experience. It can also create better adherence to the drugs. Uh, one of the things the payers are concerned about in reimbursing for these drugs are the, are the patient's going to comply. Mm-hmm. Well, you can tell very quickly from a CGM if somebody's complying because you can see how steady their glucose is and, and how the spikes are not as big as they used to be before they were on these drugs. I think we can be a great scorecard for this. I think over time we can use the performance of our system combined with other data such as activity data, sleep data, whatever data we can incorporate into our, our, our data ecosystem and create an experience that can help people be healthier across the board. I, I never thought for a minute that uh, these drugs would exclude CGM. Hmm. I think we can become a vital part of it. We just have to define that. Just like we've defined our place in the insulin using world, now basal insulin, we'll, we'll define our place in this one too. And I think we'll do very well. Our co- This kind of takes this a step further, but our co-founder, David Gardner, talks a lot about the importance of investing in companies that are building the future you'd like to see. And in so many ways, right, Dexcom is building a better future. But ultimately, CGM devices manage diabetes rather than cure or eliminate it. So, how does Dexcom fit into this futuristic world in which maybe diabetes doesn't exist? Well, type 1 diabetes isn't going to be affected by, by these drugs. Uh, there could be a cure someday. I, I, there are many programs where people are trying to get cures, and that'd be a, a tremendous outcome for everybody. Let's be very clear. But, but at the end of all this, you're going to need a scorecard, and, and your, people are going to need to see how healthy they are. And even, again, if type 2 diabetes is delayed, you learn so much from wearing a CGM. You learn more from wearing a CGM about your metabolic health than almost anything you can do. We believe we can create experiences that fit right along with all this. And as somebody has prediabetes or, you know, for example, gestational diabetes, we just got our pregnancy. We had a label. We can now be used in, in pregnancy. Well, you know, I have grandbabies uh, that had a gestational diabetes. I have a gestational diabetes daughter-in-law, and she was sticking her finger for the first couple of weeks. She called me up, can you give me one of those? It made night and day difference, and my twin grandbabies are here largely came when they needed to come because she wore a sensor. We have a place across this healthcare spectrum, and and, and glucose data is going to be important enough that we'll figure out where to get it in. Uh, I think this noise will eventually quiet down and and will be uh, an important part of this community. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Deidre Woolard. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.